Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the LSEs uh, for, the, for, for this evening's event. My name is Sita Peña-Gangadaran, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Media and Communications and acting director of the Media Policy Project. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Media Policy Project, our goal is to spark conversations between policymakers, media professionals, civil society actors about the latest media research. We cover a broad range of media policy topics, such as internet governance, press regulation, children in the media, as well as surveillance and algorithmic accountability. A few practical matters before we start. First, for the Twitter able, uh, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Gandhi. Second, we ask that you please put your phones on silent so as to not disrupt the event. Third, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Fourth, in the event of a fire or emergency, there are four exits <laughs> um, which you are directed to use. And lastly, we will host a uh, post-event drinks reception to which you are all invited just outside in the lobby here. And now to the reason we're all here tonight. I am so very pleased to welcome Oscar Gandy, Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, to the LSE today to deliver a lecture on surveillance in the public sphere, engaging a democratic dilemma. Professor Gandhi is a seminal thinker in surveillance, public opinion, and communication and race studies, and his work has been formative and ongoing. At this very moment, discussion of data's powers, data's risks, and data's benefits reflects public anxiety and hopes. There is growing interest among policymakers in data ethics and data-driven discrimination. Just in the past few weeks, for example, the White House published a report on algorithmic fairness, and today the Cabinet Office published its framework for data science ethics. One can't help but note Professor Gandhi's influence in these debates about the power of automated technologies. His book, The Panoptic Sort, published in 1983, exposed the nature and impact of complex discriminatory technologies, technologies that sort people into categories and that develop robust cybernetic intelligence about individuals' economic value. Automated discrimination, a concept which he has detailed across many writings, including coming to terms with chance, considers the ways in which intelligent technologies deepen in existing inequalities and create feedback loops of injustice for members of marginalized communities. As the trend towards computerization has increased over the past several decades, it is Professor Gandhi's work, it's, Gan, it's Professor Gandhi whose work has helped scholars the public and decision makers to develop a vocabulary 
with which to understand how information plays an integral role in the development and reproduction of systems of power. Professor Gandhi's commitment to this scholarly endeavor, of course, extends beyond the realm of social justice and fairness to that of democratic discourse at large. His notion of the information subsidy written about more than 30 years ago brings to light the inner institutional mechanics of news and policymaking and the disadvantages that processes of information subsidization create for the ordinary individual wishing to participate in public decision-making. And that topic couldn't be more relevant today in today's climate of contentious electoral politics. I'm sure we are all looking forward to hearing Professor Gandhi expand upon these concepts tonight. After Professor Gandhi's lecture, we will hear a response from Louisa Moore, Professor of Geography at the University of Durham. Professor Moore will speak for 20 minutes, after which uh, we'll have a little bit of interaction uh, on the stage, and then we'll open the floor to questions uh, for the remaining time. For now, please join me in welcoming Oscar Gandhi to deliver his Thank you, Caesar, for that wonderful introduction. It helps me to appreciate just what it is that I see when I look in the mirror each morning. Um, reminds me of the last time that I had the privilege of uh, speaking before an audience here at LSE. Want to see if I learned anything in the interim? For example, I learned that it was a good strategy to start a presentation with a little humor. I often tell some version of um, the story about the Good Samaritan who picks up an injured snake um, along the side of the road. He carries this snake across the street only to be bitten upon reaching the other side. And with his last breath, the Samaritan says, Why? 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 Of course, the serpent, an emeritus professor, replies with another question. Why are you surprised? You knew what I was when you picked me up. <laughs> I'm assuming, of course, that Professor Gangaradhan um, gave the powers that be a pretty good idea of what I was when she convinced them that they should allow me to uh, speak. Along those lines, I should say that I actually do recognize there are some important um, values and benefits to be derived from the surveillance segmentation and targeting of audiences for the delivery of political messages, but I warn you in advance, I don't plan to spend much of my time with you talking about the benefits of those activities. My focuses will be, as it almost always is, on the problems and concerns that I don't think we're paying enough attention to. So, as some of you may know, much of the focus um, about privacy and surveillance scholars has been on the government. Uh, my, uh, in the state, my attention, on the other hand, has been focused on the corporate sector uh, and the strategies and tactics used to exercise control over the behavior of individuals in their roles as employees and citizens and consumers. Naturally, I've been pleased to see a substantial increase over time in the amount of attention being paid to the role of surveillance in the identification, the classification, the evaluation, and the manipulation of consumers in the marketplace. But what I'm turning my attention to these days is on the use of the same strategies and techniques in order to shape the cognitive, affective, and behavioral responses of individuals in their roles as citizens, as members of the public sphere. 
Although I've tried to resist this tendency to talk about people in their dual roles as citizens and consumers, you might hear me slip from time to time uh, and make reference to the citizen-consumer. Sorry. I've been traveling and I've been counting and, and taking notes about how many coffers I found on the plane that I was on. The number is quite high, so let's see if I can get through uh, this. I want to be clear that I'm resisting the efforts to include the prosumer uh, in my vocabulary, but I also want to be clear that the salience of public concerns about immigrants and migrants and refugees and transients leaves me still searching for an appropriate term of reference for the people who are falling between the cracks around uh, these markers of identity or identification within those spaces that we call markets uh, these days. Much of what we will be talking about uh, during our time here together will be about transaction-generated information, or TGI. That's the primarily the product of consumer surveillance. I recognize that a good deal of the information um, gathering looks a lot like the kinds of surveillance that we've become accustomed to in the workplace, especially uh, in the context of the kinds of work that's being done both as producers and consumers of content within the social media environment. What I'm hoping, though, is that by exploring how data related to their behavior as consumers is being incorporated into predictions about their suitability as targets for other persuasive messages, such as those regarding a referendum about uh, public housing or water usage rates or, dare I say, taxes. We're going to come to appreciate just how serious these activities are as threats to democracy as an ideal many of us believe worth pursuing. Actually, I have to say I've been struggling with a sense... Um, to make better sense of the efforts being made to turn politics and the public into a marketplace, this new marketplace would be subject to the same logics and techniques and resources that seem to matter in those other kinds of markets. Important transformations have already begun in the American public sphere, where the Supreme Court has emphatically declared that money is speech. And if that were not enough, the court went on to argue that corporations and organizations and organizational speech is entitled to the same protections as the speech, as the expressed views of individuals engaged in the political discussion or in debate. I mean, these decisions by the court have dramatically transformed the nature of those debates and the consequences that flow from them. Political engagement, much of which we might associated with our activity within the public sphere, covers a rather broad range of activities. I doubt that many of us would agree that information about our roles and many of even the kinds of activities that we might participate in should be made publicly available. I mean, James Gardner provides an extensive but still incomplete list of the kinds of information about our political activities that we might not want to see associated with our names, or worse, on Google Maps, identifying exactly where it is that we live. Gardner's discussion of the roles of anonymity, that, that anonymity plays in politics draws some important distinctions between liberal and deliberative forms of democratic decision-making. Those of us who hold the deliberative model up as a worthwhile ideal might be concerned about the use of analytical techniques designed to identify the true and private sense that we're supposed to set aside 
in favor of the collective well-being that's actually become a commonplace in the modern public sphere. Ryan Kalo's um, comprehensive assessment of the nature of what he refers to as digital market manipulation is concerned primarily with consumer protection in the market for goods and services. However, I think that much of the same concerns apply to a marketized public sphere. What Kalo and others are suggesting is that communication within the marketplace, whether it's for commercial goods and services, or whether it's for political candidates and public policies, has been designed to have the maximum persuasive impact on members of targeted uh, public segments, population segments, sorry. And thinking about political data as personal information, Ira Rubinstein is also quite helpful in thinking about um, the many different kinds of data that have been of value for those seeking to do what? To produce influence within the public sphere. Some of those differences have to do with how the data are acquired in the first place. Some of the most important and readily available information is that which is, has, been, has been supplied because it was required in order to gain access to some resource, such as registering for Facebook or even to post a response um, to an editorial in the local newspaper. There's also that massive amount of personal information um, that people volunteer as part of their effort to achieve visibility and status within some social network. Then, of course, there's that information that can be observed from particular vantage points within the network because of the protocols that are governing how a browser interacts with some website. And finally, I would suggest, most importantly, that I. Rubenstein invites us to consider the mass of information about individuals that is the product of statistical analysis. He refers to this as inferred data. I want to invite you to think about the substantial differences, dis distances that there might be between the kinds of supposedly factual or objective data that might have been required by an authority, that which is volunteered within the context of a social network, and that which has been inferred through analysis. By distance, I'm implying more than facticity. I'm also referring to the kinds of claims about ownership or property interests that an individual might make with regard to any of the characterizations that have been associated with her by an algorithm. I'm pleased to note that much of our thinking about privacy and surveillance in the context of marketing goods and services has come to be focused on concerns about discrimination inequality, the denial of autonomy that we associate with our rights to choose as an individual. But what I'm hoping to do with you this evening is to get you to place more weight on the social and collective uh, ends of the scale when we think about marketing in the public sphere. It doesn't take much to see the parallels between marketing of commercial products and services, the marketing of political candidates or policy options. There's no meaningful difference between the forms of communication used in support of these different marketing goals. However, as we will note, when we consider differences between users and uses of segmentation and targeting, there's understandably greater latitude given to communicators in the public sphere. Political speech is granted higher regard than commercial speech, and it's therefore subject to fewer limitations on time, place, and manner. Part of what we'll have to confront in the context of this barbed wire around political speech is the fact that the techniques and the resources used as aids in the delivery of messages are often granted the same protections 
as the messages themselves. This includes, unfortunately, kinds of invasive, discriminatory uses of all available information in order to help determine which is the right message to deliver to the right target at the right time through the right medium or channel. I mean, here I need to draw some distinctions that might not be familiar to all of you. When I talk about segmentation and targeting, I'm usually talking about messages that have been designed for the general public. However, even engaged members of the public are not the primary or the final targets of political messages. Members of the public are only the channels through which the real messages are delivered to the decision makers, the folks with the power to turn ideas into actions with consequences that matter. Political scientists have developed an extensive literature that talks about this process as lobbying. I've defined lobbying as a direct information subsidy. This is where representatives of interest groups seek direct access to legislators to provide information about public policy concerns, in particular, to provide rationales for supporting one policy over another. I mean, I understand this process involves something of a multi-step flow from the organization to the lobbyist, to the staff member, to the regulator or legislator, but there's usually some understanding that the lobbyist is representing the interest of a third party. Advocacy advertising, on the other hand, is designed to motivate members of the public to contact their legislative representatives and to deliver those arguments as though they were the authentic result of debates, discussions, independent research taking place amongst ordinary members of the public. I refer to these as indirect information subsidies. Indirect information subsidies are believed to be effective in part because of the assumptions that the targets make regarding the motivations of the message source. When the source claims to be a member of the public, perhaps even a voting constituent, legitimate individual or collective interest is more likely to be assumed by the ultimate target. So let's turn our attention for a moment to focus more sharply on what I mean by the public sphere. For me, the public sphere is the site within which the problems are identified and proposals for addressing those problems are evaluated. It's true that public policies are generally thought of as being designed and implemented within governmental agencies, administrations, and legislatures. However, we've also come to recognize that policies are also developed within the judiciary. But although the policies that affect public interest are also developed within corporations, within professional organizations, we primarily have to depend upon policies established within the governmental sector to bring about some adjustments of those policies and practices um, in the entities within the public sphere. So although this is, and you can't have missed it, the electoral season in the U.S., Considerable attention around the world has been turned toward contests at the, at the presidential level where a truly bizarre process is still unfolding before our eyes, but that's really not where I want us to spend our time. Despite my tendency to care more about policy-oriented uh, campaigns than those focused on the election of particular candidates, I mean, I do recognize that many of us vote to support a particular candidate, not because we like their looks or the sound of their voice, or because we think they deserve the opportunity to lead. We support the election of a candidate to office because we believe that she or he will work to establish and defend the policies that we prefer. 
Of course, we know quite well from the challenges faced by the Obama administration, not even presidents can establish the policies that they want and desire. So let me again return to the primary thread of my comments for this evening. I want to talk about the regulation of technology, the technology of surveillance to be sure, but I want to do it from a perspective that seeks to minimize the harms that flow from its use within the public sphere. While my concern about harms to individuals is always present in my analysis and critique, I'm especially concerned about the harms that are being visited upon the democratic process and its contribution to our collective well-being. The assessment of technology is multidimensional. We're concerned about its functionality, about how well it serves its purposes. We're also concerned about the unintended consequences, those primarily considered as collateral damages or externalities. On occasion, when we talk about technology, some of us make references to a small boy with a hammer for whom everything needs a little hammering. The point we're trying to make here is that while the same technology can often be used for a great variety of uses, not all of them should be considered an appropriate or legitimate best use. So purpose and intention matters. Our assessments of technology are usually extended to include evaluations of the resources that are used in the production process. So just as though we've become concerned about the social cost of carbon, as an energy source for our machines, we need to be concerned about the social cost of personal information when it becomes used as a resource in the production of influence within the public sphere. Just as with carbon, our concerns about the uses to which TGI can be put is shaped by our awareness of the consequences that flow from that use. Policy-relevant decisions about the use of information in ways that affect the life chances of individuals are often framed in terms of a politically relevant category to which an individual has been assigned. Such uh, an individual might be a member of a protected class, and as a result, the government might have a special interest in ensuring that the technologies being used actually have some discriminatory and predictive power. On the other hand, that individual may only be a member of an analytically derived category for which there are no widely available data about the reliability or the precision of their identification. There's likely to be even less information available with regard to the consequences of the avoidance or the neglect that might arise for members of idiosyncratically described groups. Although we don't have the data, the theory, or the research that we would need to predict those troublesome outcomes, I don't doubt that a whole host of policies in the U.S. and around the globe have led to rising inequality, limitations on political participation, including the right to vote, to reductions in the opportunities for women to exercise their reproductive rights, or the hopes of parents and neighbors or friends that they might actually get to the end of the day or a week without suffering the loss of a loved one because a gun was fired in anger or in fear. It also matters who the users are because the identification of a use does not automatically indicate the quality, the character, the intention of the user. For example, we understand that political parties are privileged actors. When it comes to gathering information and the resources they believe that they need in order to produce and distribute messages designed to help achieve the party's goals, there are still further distinctions to be drawn between long-standing political parties 
and a host of political action groups organized to some degree, regulated in terms of their ability to gather and use funds to influence electoral outcomes. I actually believe there's a meaningful distinction to be drawn between profit-seeking users of government-organized public information and private, non-profit, um, public interest-oriented users of the same information. But I also suspect that those distinctions that we might recognize today are not likely to last. When we already have seen that government agencies have come to rely upon commercial vendors of personal information as ways to work around the regulatory constraints that had been designed to limit the gathering and sharing of this kind of information. But still, there's more that we need to consider. When I talk about users, I was referring primarily to the policy actors who are pursuing their individual and collective interests within the public sphere. Often these actors make use of resources within their own organization to design and implement uh, policy-oriented campaigns. Increasingly, however, they make um, use of commercial service vendors to provide data, skill, and technology required to mount a successful campaign. Many of the actors in this massive and growing industry are multi-product firms. They're able to manage an entire campaign, while other specialists in gathering publicly available information, combining it with information gathered by other means. Aristotle is one of the older, more traditional organizations that provide support for political campaigns in the U.S., and around the world. Its campaigns are prime examples of strategic initiatives designed to generate indirect information subsidies. Sometimes the policy focus is precise and limited, such as getting a, a provision removed from a bill or an alteration of a regulatory proposal that's up for consideration within an agency. Aristotle's marketing materials reinforce the importance of knowing the targets well. In the case of fundraising, the special insight that they promise is knowledge, or at least a prediction about how much a target is likely to give when asked. In their view, it makes no sense to ask for less than um, that special number inside a target's head. How do they know what that number is? I mean, their claim, that's where Aristotle's deep data mining and powerful algorithms come in. As a multi-product firm, Aristotle provides a campaign staff with maps, uh, based on geospatial selection tools, as well as resources that allow field staff to report uh, contributions and commitments, as well as the ability to use the data that it's acquired in the field to continually adjust uh, the elements of their digital media campaign. While there are many stars in the sky, none seem to shine as brightly as Catalyst, this is the firm that most observers um, credit with winning the election and re-election of Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Catalyst is also a multi-product firm that provides data, analytics, toolkits that political operatives use to win elections and to succeed in achieving policy goals. As a frontline list broker, Catalyst provides clients with custom-tailored lists enabling those volunteers to contact millions of individuals. They are generally credited with having the most complete, accurate, and accessible database of potential voters in the United States. And like other brokers, they claim that the information that's been gathered from a variety of sources is, seed, is said to exceed 700 fields of data. That can be used for modeling and predicting the behavioral responses of more than 270 million individuals that have been identified within their lists. With this massive database, 
And with their large and growing staff of data scientists, Catalyst is able to specialize in what used to be called micro-targeting. While there's considerable puffery involved in use of such terms, clearly micro-targeting, even nano-targeting, is a lot sexier than geodemographic clustering. But what they actually do is to segment or divide the target population into a relatively small number of categories that are evaluated in terms of their value and reliability as agents or actors in relation to a specific campaign. At this point, let me draw some distinctions between the use of these consultants to mobilize members of the public to deliver appeals to decision makers, do the right thing, and the delivery of these messages through organizations created specifically to create the impression of mobilized public opinion. We tend to refer to the grassroots as the genuine expression of deeply felt opinions of the politically engaged. Interest groups, including unions, corporations, business associations, engage in grassroots lobbying where their campaigns are focused in mobilizing segments of the public toward expressing their opinions to decision makers within some policy-relevant domain. AstroTurf, on the other name, on the other hand, refers to the attempt to produce the same impact that a mobilized public would produce without the need for any public engagement in deliberation. AstroTurf communications are artificial. They are simulated, manufactured, illegitimate, and anti-democratic. But it's only fair in a setting like this that I note that AstroTurf campaigns don't rely quite so much upon surveillance of the public. So let me spend a few moments laying out some of my comments regarding the impact that changes in technology are having on the role of surveillance in the public sphere. While there are a great many changes that have taken place within the information environment that we refer to as the web, and because change is the new normal within this environment, it's a bit foolhardy to talk about any single thing as being more important than any other. But if I had to choose, I would certainly suggest that third-party tracking is probably the leading candidate for our concern about this particular moment in time. It is through the tracking of individuals or their devices as they make their way around the web following the links provided by their favorite search engine or their friends on Facebook that so much information is being generated and captured for strategic use within the public sphere. A great many of the websites that we visit, they either leak or they actively inform other sites about the kinds of information or activities that we have demonstrated an interest in. Depending upon the nature of relations between these parties, a user's identity could either be learned or confirmed at the same time that the mosaic composition of their profile is being enhanced. The emergence of uh, third-party tracking services working as partners or as competitors to earlier providers of list-based communication services has really been quite spectacular in terms of its development as a global phenomenon. I mean, it wasn't enough for websites to produce parasitic devices, lovingly called cookies, onto our browsers without our knowledge or permission in order to facilitate the identification of our machines. No, they had to develop cookies that only seemed to disappear uh, after we engaged in a little housekeeping on our browsers. And then when that wasn't enough, 
They went on to develop digital fingerprints to help you identify not only your device, but also to move those snoops closer to identifying you as the user of particular tools on a particular device within a household or an organization. organization. We might want to think about some of these developments as an aspect of technological convergence. Changes in the size and portability of network devices increases the ease with which transactions of interest can be, limit, can be initiated and completed. The fact that these devices are encumbered with a whole host of environmental sensors makes them part of the Internet of Things. This means that we're going to have to pay more attention to this process of normalization that scholars like Neil Zorowski has referred to in his work. Of course, I'm particularly interested in the, abil- in the ability of a field volunteer to get a donation for a candidate or a campaign with the swipe of a card or a tap from your phone or your watch while you're still chatting with her on the front porch. I mean, it's here that we consider some of the means that become available to transform TGI, this massive data, into strategic intelligence that enables discrimination in the public sphere. I believe that it's useful to think about big data analytics as a kind of remote sensing. Unlike audiovisual technologies that amplify the signals that are produced as we make our way through the environment, much of the data that are used in assigning us to analytically generated categories and groups have actually been gathered from activities of other people. Some of these others may have been willing volunteers in surveys and experiments. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of information about specific individuals that are being increasingly aggregated in order to produce a profile that incorporates some aspects of their individual identity in order to facilitate their identification as a member of a category, class, or group. What I'm trying to do is emphasize the importance of those cues that are based on indirect rather than direct information about an individual. I'm referring here to the information that's used to generate a fairly accurate or at least a reliable prediction about the answers about ourselves that we might have been reluctant to provide in response to a question that might not have even been asked because they were illegal or simply not considered to be polite or appropriate in a particular context or relationship. I mean, while it died, okay. While some people may self-identify as members of uh, racial or ethnic groups, especially within the context of social media, they are not likely to have known anything about, much less have been provided their scores on some of these measures that are being linked to their racial, ethnic, or cultural classification, they are most unlikely to know how their score on the individualism or uncertainty avoidance or indulgence scales are being used by marketers as aids in creating more powerful commercials and political appeals. I actually doubt that many of us would knowingly participate in the extensive surveys that are necessary for the production and evaluation of the many scores that are assigned to people because of their membership within these particular kinds of population segments. 
There are great many other kinds of scores which are being assigned to individuals that most people don't know anything about. These include social influence scores like clout and cred. They're based on algorithmic evaluations of followers and retweets and other indicators of status as opinion leaders within the public sphere. And for those scores which we do know about, most of us have come to recognize that we really don't have a choice about using those resources or participating in social media and accepting the rules about scoring that have been established and then continually modified by these providers. More troublesome still. You know what I was when you picked me up? Okay. Even with regard to concerns about the accuracy of these scores and the probability they will be used in the determination of which members of the public will be included or excluded from the stream of information about the issues being examined as part of the public agenda. What I want to suggest is that we also need to come to terms with the fact that we are almost always certain to be participants in online experiments, most of which are being conducted without our knowledge or consent. These experiments, many of which are quite simple in their design, are actually quite important in terms of the impact they are already having on the public sphere. Here I'm talking about those experiments referred to as A-B tests that are being administered to determine which communication cues are more likely to be more successful with a particular audience segment in bringing about some desired behavior, such as an online contribution to a political campaign. Again, I invite you to consider, though, whether you think that we should decide that all or even most of these experiments raise important privacy concerns, or whether you think that they just present, represent another form of unpaid labor in which social network users are contributing to the improvement of the technologies that are likely to be used in their own manipulation and in the manipulation of others who just happen to be like them in some not clearly self-evident way. I mean, no doubt, most of you recall the negative public response that went up when it was learned that social networks and news and information platforms were conducting experiments in order to assess the impact that subtle adjustments in the supply of content might have on their users. A fairly important example was the so-called, I don't know if you've all heard this, about academic exercise. Randomized control trial of political mobilization messages that were delivered to 61 million Facebook users during the 2015 congressional, 2010, sorry, 2010 congressional elections. When this study by Robert Bond and his colleagues was finally published in the journal Nature in 2012, there was still actually very little in the way of a critical public response, despite the significant impact that these news feeds shared by friends who had supposedly already voted, the impact it had as a nudge towards getting somebody out to vote. A much more substantial level of public concern emerged in 2014 in response to another Facebook experiment. This time it was about something called emotional contagion. 
In the view of many, the project seems to have overstepped the bounds of research ethics because it placed subjects at an emotional risk without providing the opportunity for those subjects to grant or withhold their informed consent. And while Facebook offered something of an apology with regard to the mistakes it made with regard to informed consent, it failed to address many of the privacy concerns raised by numerous critical observers. These ongoing experiments by service providers are to some degree different from the kinds of experiments that have become commonplace within electoral campaigns. Daniel Kreiss and Phil Howard have noted the almost continuous experiments that have become part of the Obama campaign in 2008. It was used to evaluate and alter the emails being sent out to supporters in an effort to learn which messages were likely to result in more donations. They argued that these and other strategies were designed to both understand and influence the development of particular orientations amongst supporters. They suggested, though, that these should be seen as threats to what they called political privacy. Lisa Bernard and Christ later provided the historical trajectory of the movement of campaigns toward identifying more individualized targets, especially in the network environment, of particular interest amongst the strategic developments that were put into play during the 2008 cycle was the decision to go beyond the mobilization of um, those people toward using especially developed interactive resources, such as a tax cut calculator, that the undecided could then use to see how much money they would save in order to, uh, if they used one of those plans that the Obama campaign had promised. As you look back over the design and use of online experiments, it seems pretty clear that there are no limits to the efforts being made to learn more about how to manipulate targets within the public sphere. It seems especially clear that we need to take note of an increase in the number uh, and variety of automated systems being developed to facilitate the more efficient, productive, and delivery of messages. Emilio Ferrara and his colleagues have already called our attention to the use of social bots to create the impression of a rapidly increasing level of opposition or support for some policy proposal. You might think about the use of these bots as an automated and even less expensive version of the more traditional AstroTurf campaigns that use paid labor. While the messages produced and distributed by social bots are primarily delivered in text, I don't think we're very far at all from a time when algorithmically designed persuasive messages will be delivered by conversational agents in the context of real-time interaction over the telephone with human targets. Again, I feel the need to be clear about my orientation toward experimentation. Many critical scholars engage in what I think we would all recognize as experiments, but they often do them in an attempt to identify and evaluate some of the systems that they believe discriminate in ways that would lead to cumulative disadvantage. The identification of discriminatory patterns in response to a in responses of an organization or its agents, whether human or not, would provide important information about the consequences that might flow from the widespread use of this technology. Christian Sandvig and his colleagues have proposed a number of experimental investigations along these lines that I think would be highly beneficial. Excuse me. Arguably, these periodic assessments of algorithmic deciders should be, could be administered by a government agency uh, in much the same way that municipal licenses and inspections officers periodically test weights 
uh, and measures and the content of packages and containers of food products intended for sale. In the meanwhile, algorithmic audits and the kind that they propose might still be worth doing if it weren't for the legal and ethical problems involved in masquerading as an army of users. Let me extend these examples just a little bit in the direction of uh, public opinion surveys. I've written in the past about the importance of public opinion surveys in the development of public policies, including policies related to privacy and surveillance. I noted that firms within information-intensive industries were very active in providing financial support and guidance in the development of surveys about consumers' views about privacy and alternatives for regulatory response. These corporate actors and their representatives made strategically selected use of survey data when giving testimony in support of their preferred versions of privacy legislation at the national level. Of course, mainstream public opinion surveys of the sort we encounter within the press and within congressional testimony tend to be anonymous. They usually emphasize similarities and differences between a variety of aggregates and groups, but we have no basis for assuming that anonymity is promised or assured for the surveys or polls administered by or on behalf of political parties or advocacy organizations. So it's at this point in an already lengthy presentation that a speaker like me is supposed to provide some answers to the burning questions about what it is that we're supposed to do. We're certainly going to have to confront the need for better articulations of the nature of the harms that are likely to flow from the continued and expanded use of TGI as an aid to manipulative communication within the public sphere. Unfortunately, it hasn't seemed to matter very much, at least not in the United States, that people say they dislike being targeted for communication based on inferential data or algorithmic assessments. Part of the reason is that we haven't been able to provide enough compelling examples of individual or even collective privacy harms that matter very much in the comparisons of the values of technical advance or the expansion of profitable businesses that support employment or increase the direct or indirect flow of tax revenue to government accounts. Unfortunately, the values that we associate with informed participation of the general public in the formation of public policies are not easily compared with the economic measures most commonly used in benefit-cost analyses. And amongst the most important harms to the public sphere and to the democracy that it supports are those that are associated with the exclusion of some people from deliberation and debate, as well as the absence of broadly experienced nudge to participate across a range of possibilities for engaging in political activity. Of course, we value the contributions that have been made by the technologically gifted amongst us who have developed countermeasures designed to protect users from the devices that enable third-party tracking. While the number of people with those skills continues to increase, and certainly here, I understand how difficult it will be for many of them and perhaps some of you to resist the siren's call to join the one percenters rather than trying to make ends meet by using their talent and skills defending the public interest in the democratic process. I also doubt that there are many who are willing to confront the awesome power of the corporate lawyers who are ready to bring the weight of the law down upon them for developing and sharing arguably illegal countermeasures like track me not. I want to tip my hat here to Helen Nissenbaum and Daniel Howe for the dedication, skill, and courage that led them to step out on that particular uh, bridge. 
Rather than hoping for the arrival of some reasonably stable technological advantage being achieved by the wizards working in support of contextual integrity and user control over the information they provide as they move through life, it seems clear to me that we need some kind of regulatory intervention. We need a regulatory policy that sets meaningful, and by that I mean enforceable limits, on the collection and use of TGI, especially for uses related to participation in the public sphere. Since it's somewhat easier to regulate business or commercial activity than it is to regulate political speech more directly, it might make more sense to explore regulation of those organizations whose business it is to engage in collection, processing, and use of personal information in support of political discrimination. Of course, and unfortunately, restriction on the use of information is not without difficulties. Indeed, as those difficulties, they're actually quite substantial. In the U.S., the First Amendment and the protection of political speech would be the first line of defense taken in response to any regulatory challenges to a firm's ability to provide services arguably designed to support the Speech Act. On the other hand, I believe that it can be argued that segmentation and targeted is antithetical to the rights of audiences to access the kind of speech that they actually need in order to become informed participants in the public sphere. While the mission of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission includes ensuring that, quoting here again, when consumers see and hear an advertisement, that ad must be truthful, not misleading, end of quote. That kind of protection seems not to extend to political speech. My former dean, Kathleen Jameson, has recently used a set of case studies to illustrate how false and misleading advertising have resulted in legislative decisions that were in direct conflict with the best measures of existing opinion about what the public actually prefers. In an especially egregious case where public opinion achieved unusually high level of agreement in support of legislation that would require background checks and limit the sale of weapons by unlicensed individuals at gun shows or over the internet, the National Rifle Association initiated an advertising campaign that falsely asserted that the nation's police officers oppose that bill. I actually believe that there is a place for the development of an institutional review board along the lines of the gone but not forgotten U.S. Office of Technology Assessment. We've seen the development of risk assessment, um, risk management and risk assessment as specializations within the academy. And we've also seen risk assessment emerge as core concerns when a range of public policies are being debated. Although there are ongoing debates about what the function of risk assessment in public policy domain should actually be, what concerns me is that the fairly common disregard for the distribution of the harms that are identified, we haven't paid attention to them. I mean, I'm, I'm among those who believe that the distribution of harm, like the distribution of knowledge, is not random. Harm, like ignorance, tends to accumulate within certain communities, classes, and categories of people. Distributions should matter. I'm pretty sure by now I have exceeded your tolerance for negativism. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> Let me try my hand at offering some possible responses to some of the problems that I have identified. Of course, I don't expect that I'll move too many of you to action. That's not just me being negative. Many of these ideas are ill-formed and likely to be challenged as being politically naive, uh, but I can deal with that. Some of them, though, are actually pretty bizarre. Indeed, 
Some of them are so far removed from the kinds of things that I've suggested in the past that I might even deny that I said it at some point in the future. Part of what I have in mind is the development of a challenge to the ruling constructions of speech that combine or confuse activities such as profiling, segmentation, or targeting enabled through surveillance as speech worthy of defense. I mean, here I'm trying to separate the preparation and delivery of a message from a design, its design and use as a strategic resource within a public sphere. Despite the tendency within the United States to treat money as speech, I believe that distinctions can and must be drawn between speakers and their right to speak about certain things. And although there is some recognition that corporations and other collectivities may in some legal context be treated as individuals, I think it's well past time for us to develop and argue the case once again that corporations are not people. Can I get an amen? And they should do not, should not have the same rights that are granted to individual human beings. Tamara Piety has taken the first giant step in this direction with her book, The Brandishing of the First Amendment. She argues that virtually all speech by corporations is commercial speech, and almost none of it deserves constitutional protection against regulatory constraint. Following her arguments along these lines, I would certainly want to argue that neither corporations, their executives, nor their agents have the right to engage in political speech designed to reach or influence members of the public. With the time that I have left, let me turn my attention to that final suggestion about what there is to be done. Here I want to hearken back to some earlier comments that echo the arguments of Jerome Barron, who argued that the freedom of the press has been provided in the interest of the people, not the publishers. By this, Barron and those who follow his argument believe that it is the right of access to information by the public that is the true meaning and the purpose of the First Amendment. Again, this is not too different from the justifications that have been provided for the grants of special protections to authors under copyright and intellectual property law in order to ensure that the public has access to the benefits of those contributions. I'm asking you to imagine the development and support of an information system optimized for democratic ends that would facilitate the flow of information to individuals based on the diversity and quality of their diets. This is not a regulatory proposal. This is a marketplace proposal. Yes, I said it, a marketplace proposal that might be subsidized by foundations concerned with the state of democracy. It might be financed in part by taxes imposed upon advertiser-supported information flows where it's reasonable to assume that the influence of sponsors over content is substantial and that its purpose is largely manipulative rather than informative. Imagine the development of an alternative platform to Google, Twitter, and Facebook. This would be one that sees diversity rather than polarization as a fundamental requirement of a healthy democracy. This diversity of opinion and respect might result from helping the public to develop a healthier, more balanced informa <coughs> informational diet. Just as we have widely accepted automated measures of uh, readability of text, I suspect that there are already resources 
based upon computational linguistics that would facilitate the assessment of the content of our media diets with regard to ideological or political slants. I'm not ready to say that political blogs would always be evaluated as being at the end of some political or issue-based continuum, but I am ready to say that political blogs as expression of an individual speaker's political views are likely to make a greater contribution to an informed electorate than a slickly produced political ad, especially if those blogs were being consumed as part of a balanced diet. This would be a campaign, many like those that attempt to help people to modify their behavior in the interest of their health and well-being. It's not much of a metaphysical leap to think about consumption of media information in terms of a healthy diet. I mean, in the context of my concerns about the status of trusted agents rather than government censors, the utilization of algorithms to evaluate our information diets and provide gentle nudges would have to be absolutely and assuredly free of the risk of surveillance and sharing with others. I mean any others. This means that I believe that those Internet service providers whose business it is to help us gain access to information and facilitate communication with others should be bound by the same moral, ethical, and professional values that libraries are bound by. What you read, hear, or view should be nobody's business but yours. I think that's enough of that for now, so I want to thank you for your patience. Um, let's turn now our attention to um, Professor Amor and her comments. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's an honor, of course, to be invited to respond to Professor Gandhi's lecture. And I want to also thank Sita and Catherine for, for the invitation and for the, uh, the organization. So I'm, I'm only going to take a few minutes because, uh, you know, the title of tonight talks about the public sphere and democratic dilemma. And I think that means we need to have a conversation. So I'm going to try to keep my comments brief. So I want to begin by saying that our contemporary moment is one in which a democratic dilemma posed by big data analytics, transactions generated information, semi-supervised or unsupervised machine learning, pattern recognition in unstructured data, seems particularly pressing. The dilemma is particularly pressing. It's of the utmost concern. And yet, just as Oscar Gandhi speaks so perceptively of our contemporary moment, he has also cautioned of the emergence of this moment for more than 30 years. And in the preparation for this lecture, I went back to the books that I read as an undergraduate. And it's amazing. You know, in 1982, in his book Beyond Agenda Setting, Oscar defines here the term information subsidy... He's talking, of course, about the targeted reduction of the cost of information. But my reading of it is it's also about the capacity to filter information in a targeted way. And this is 1982, when I was 10 years old and using a BBC Acorn computer, right? The, the algorithms were very simple, but the political message in, in Oscar's book was really compelling in 1982, 
And of course, in 1993, in his book, The Panoptic Sort, where he details very carefully how commercial organisations such as Equifax gather consumer data from credit card transactions, for example, and use matching algorithms to integrate that data with other public and government databases. So his, his approach to what I think of as discrimination by data was interested even in 1993 in that intersection between the commercial and the governmental data and this crossing back and forth. And for the 21st century, with cloud computing and so on, perhaps we might even say that boundary now no longer is meaningfully existing um, between public and private databases and the capacity to analyse across that seam, public and private. So the lines of his work signal, I think, the landscape of a world which at the time he was writing was not yet fully in view. So if there was something I really wanted to ask him tonight, it's what does 2050 look like, given his capacity to to predict. (laughs) So surely some of the things he shared with us tonight also contain some elements of an emergent future, a kind of critical anticipation. So maybe one of the things we do when we're confronted with predictive technologies is think about critical ways to anticipate which, whilst they're showing their effects in our cultural, economic and political lives, I think that Oscar is quite quite right to say these are also stretching the limits of the legal and the ethical frames that we have to understand them. So privacy, data protection, integrity, and the attachment of those things to a liberal subject who can meaningfully claim those rights. I think that, for me, is fundamental to the dilemma. We would, we would otherwise invoke those things to protect us, and do they any longer do their job? So the insights he shared with us in tonight's lecture... I want to suggest offer a vocabulary to be able to ask some of the questions at the heart of this democratic dilemma. When technologies such as predictive analytics act upon the uncertain future, so to target by marketing companies, insurance industry, drugs companies, but also by police forces, borders and security authorities, what harms do they do, these actions on the uncertain future to the capacity to make a democratic political claim in the present? What do they do to our capacity to speak or to make a claim? Is it possible anymore to speak back and say, no, that is not me, that is not my intent you have inferred from your data, the sentiment analysis that you've done of me does not capture my sentiment and sensibility? Is there a response to this kind of inference. When, as Oscar has put it in a recent essay, I'm quoting from him now, most of the time, he says, we will simply not be able to identify the assaults, consequences or actors responsible for the harms that will be generated. So are our conventions of rights to privacy or to bodily integrity or the much-vaunted digital right to be forgotten really up to the task of responding to this dilemma? For in part, I think the dilemma is this. As increasing volumes of our data circulate within and across the public and private domains and private databases or migrate to the compute cloud, It is algorithms that allow some part of us to come to the surface for action, to buy a product, 
to be targeted by a political campaign, to be ascribed a credit rating, or to be given a risk score at an airport, for example. Is this person who comes to the surface derived, as Oscar says, from association rules with multiple other persons. So this is not a a complete subject. This is parts of us in association with parts and patterns of other people. Is this person recognisable as a citizen, as a data subject, as a democratic subject, or as the bearer of rights to privacy? Does the data from which my sensibilities are inferred any longer meaningfully belong to me when it's, I want to suggest, a composite of fragments of multiple people. So I want to suggest briefly now a number of ways I think that uh, Oscar's work is challenging us all to find a vocabulary to be able to respond to some of these questions. And within it, if I may, I have a few questions of my own. So the first is about the relationship between segmentation and discrimination. Of course, arguably the segmentation of populations has a very long history, and it's twinned, of course, by the history of statistics. So Ian Hacking, in his very famous, beautifully written book, The Taming of Chance, details the history of statistical forms of governing, the 19th century extension of the Gaussian distribution or the bell curve of normalities from the physical sciences to human and social phenomena. As Hacking put it, this yields indices of the human condition of behaviours, attributes and habits of people. Now, with new methods for segmenting population and profiling norms and abnormalities come, I think, new forms of discrimination. Oscar has shown us how important the techniques of market segmentation and the segmentation of audiences, how important these have become to contemporary ways of governing population. This is how targets are defined. This is how lists are made. In my own research, this includes blacklists, no-fly lists, for example. It lists the people at risk, those who pose a risk, those who might be worthy of a particular commercial offer, a life insurance policy, even those who should or should not receive a specific cancer drug. As Oscar has put it so powerfully, the panoptic sort is a discriminatory technology. It produces new forms of profiling, ways of discriminating within and between individuals and groups. So this brings me to my my first question. I'd like to ask Oscar how one might begin to respond, and I think at the end of the lecture you did begin to signal some of these things, how one might begin to respond to the claim of rational machine segmentation, this claim of objectivity. So in my own interviews with those designing algorithms for border security, for example, so this is including Twitter data, Facebook data, past travels transactions, past financial transactions... The claim is very often made that this is an objective way of seeing, that no human eyes see it, that it's done through the algorithm. How does one respond critically to the claim that no human eyes see it? How do we show the discrimination all the way down, if you like, from the surface human decision through risk scoring and into machine learning software? How do we hold on to that sense of discrimination all the way down? And the second point I want to raise or think about is responsibility and accountability. 
I think there are various attempts underway to try to call to account some of these forms of technological analysis of transactions data. And many of them are seeking to extend forms of legal regulation. So, for example, in European data protection law, the sense that there would be protection of individuals from fully automated decisions made about them. The idea that a human should be in the loop. I think we hear that a lot in regulation. The human must be in the loop somewhere. Similarly, sociologists, geographers, media and communication scholars have called for what they call opening the black box of algorithmic decisions. But I want to suggest that these methods of calling to account the technologies are not so very easy for us to do in practice. As one software designer for sentiment analysis put it to me in a recent interview, he said, why do people think that putting the human back in the loop will give us responsibility? Many of the humans using my software are behaving like algorithms. <laughs> so, and, and, and as Oscar has put it himself in a recent essay, he said, the data generated in these interactions are almost certain to be used by machines and humans in ways that can affect a great variety of future interactions related to decisions on credit, insurance, housing, and the provision of other risk-sensitive services. So these interactions are not only extraordinarily difficult to scrutinise, but they also have an onward future life. They travel to new spaces and they have new effects and consequences for new people. As the, the same algorithm uh, software designer uh, described it to me, he said, where are we? I was surprised to see my algorithms were being used in other applications, things they were not designed for. Have they forgotten that my training data set was financial data? So what he'd seen was his algorithm that he'd used for credit scoring being used in border risk scoring. So the, the technique itself travelling. So I would like to ask Professor Gandhi what kind of calling to account we could, we could engage. What would count as, as responsibility? What would count as responsibility in a world where responsibility might have to be located in the interactions between humans and algorithms or even between algorithms and other algorithms? And now finally, just very briefly, the lecture has set out for us some of the many harms done to the public sphere under the rubric of surveillance. And among these harms, I think, has been a sense that the consequences of forms of machine learning, adaptive systems, pattern recognition, anomaly detection, that these will be distributed in ways that will harm the life chances of the most vulnerable. As, as Professor Gandhi highlights, they're likely to have a racial character and, of course, also a gendered character. So... My question, and I think it's as much a question for myself as anything, is does surveillance, does the concept of surveillance or the study of surveillance adequately anymore allow us to get at those harms and what is being done? Can the concept of surveillance do justice to the harms that are being done to our associative life, to our capacity to associate freely with one another without inference? to imagine a future collectively as something more than just association rules or connections between data points. So 
I guess I'm frustrated by the concept surveillance now, that it doesn't quite get us there. Let's think about the etymology, surveillance. So to watch over. It may even underestimate the harm that's done. They're perhaps no longer primarily watchful technologies, but rather they engage an affective world of all of our senses. And perhaps they no longer govern over surveillance, but actually govern through, govern through us and the patterns of our lives. And actually, transaction, in some ways, I find a much more satisfying concept. The etymology of transaction is transactio, to pass through. So then we have this, this not, not surveillance over, but this passing through, a capacity to distill patterns from the data traces of our lives, passing through the patterns of our lives. So perhaps it might even assist the critical public debate, dare I say it, if we forget surveillance. <laughs> I might regret saying that. If we're able to say, yes, actually, it's true that at some points no human eyes see it. So and sometimes it's not strictly surveillance, but that does not mean it's not harmful and that we might need to think new concepts for this technology to allow us to think about the harms. Thank you, Oscar Gandhi. We are, as ever, in your debt. Thank you to both of you. If we could take a minute to, uh, for Oscar to respond to these three provocations, and then I'd like to open the floor following that. A minute, huh? Okay, right. <laughs> I, could pause. I, I tried to, to write these notes down, and so there are clearly threads between the comments and concerns that, uh, may I say, Louise um, called our attention to. Let me see if I can find them this question about rational, you know, whether or not there's thinking involved and that there's no human involved, as though is suggested that a human is only going to engage in rational or right decisions, but we are understanding that the role of the human being making, quote, rational decisions is going to be reduced continually and rapidly. If you wanted me to project what we can expect in the 50s, I'm not alone in suggesting the amount of time that we will be engaged in what might be characterized as productive labor is going to be reduced more and more and more as more and more of that activity, especially the, um, the, the transformation of numbers, data, into, into actionable intelligence, which is the answer to the third question, <laughs> is, is that that's really the purpose and there will be continual pressure to reduce right, the amount of resources that have to be spent on financing, paying for, sending to college, paying insurance on the people who are producing this new information. The challenge for us still, and I'm always in the challenge mode, right, is how then do we begin to see what the implications are of that transformation in the reduction of responsibility placed on individuals. I'm willing to imagine that we are going to see a moment when our ability to engage in rational thought is going to be surpassed right, by machines that are engaging in and, and, and being compared to the kinds of problems. Imagine in five years from now the kinds of tests 
that will be set for students in order to see how they analyzed that problem, how they interpreted that text, how they understood that conversation. My wife is an editor and she says, no, my, I'll never be out of work. Not true. Right? The idea right, that the skills being used in order to make enough sense of text is rapidly coming upon us. So the challenge is always going to be then, how do we identify the harms? And I'm allowed myself to say, I don't care if a machine is operating in the defense of the population. I don't care if a machine is operating in defense of the democratic process that involves us. I think it's a good thing if we had the time to engage in discussion in order to, as long as we manage to maintain until the machines say that we can't be trusted to maintain, the ability to say this is the goal, this is the target, this is the purpose. So when we talked about this process as being actionable intelligence, intelligence applied to realizing goals that the people, the demos, has decided it's a goal that we share and think it's worth pursuing. I really think that's in one sense an answer to all of the questions that you, know, that you asked us. Um, I mean, I agree that we are going to move further and further from responsibility when we've got automated machinery firing off weapons, acting in ways that limit people's ability to act. But we do have a responsibility if we're the ones who assigned the task if we assign raises to the half a percent, the one half of one percent, right, who are designing the systems that they don't understand in order to make that system operate more efficiently. Someone at the moment and someone in the future that I imagine is going to be politically acting to decide the kinds of things that we are going to allow machines to do for, with, about us. That's where the focus has to be on, the role for people to decide. We decide. And that's why I'm concerned about the public sphere in this regard. I'm sure I lost all of the other questions that were there. I'm going to stop. So I do want to open up the floor. Um, we have stewards that have mic roving microphones, so if you could just raise your hands right here in the front and then in the middle down here. Hi, um, I'm, I'm, um, I teach in the media and communication department here and I teach a program called Media Communication and Development so I'm very interested in old technologies and new technologies but you've, you've really raised some spectacular issues here and I want to try and address them through my very sort of old, um, let's say an old Marxist hat. If you know that there's an enemy and you know they're a stronger class than you, you sort of organize against them and you get into your unions and you fight them. Now, what you've both identified is a group of people, some of whom are knowingly designing things and others who are unknowingly designing them and contributing to a situation in which inequality is being further and further inbuilt into our social system. Um, so there are two issues, one of transparency and two of democracy. The transparency issue you talk about is, you, you know, you people come here and you talk and you write your books and you, you say, this is what is happening. You know, are you aware of it, public? Are you aware of it, government? You know, we are being surveilled. We are being more than surveilled. We are being transacted through the way in which technologies are using us. So the first question is, you know, how can we extend your transparency that you're giving us in a very clear way 
to everybody who uses these technologies. But the second one, I think, is more fundamental, really, is the assumption that as soon as we've revealed this surveillance, these transactions to everyone, that people are just going to fall over and go, oh my goodness, um, the government will fall because they're doing this. I mean, I think a huge battle is on our hands here. And so through what avenues, through what groupings and organizations do you suggest that people in the next 50 years will have to get together to fight against governments, political parties, marketing agencies, corporations who are going to want to develop even more and more sophisticated means of doing exactly what you talked about today. This is not a simple, we tell them, they go, oops, sorry, we've been caught and stopped doing what they're, what they're doing, is it? It's a, you know, it's a battle, it seems to me, you've laid out here. Thank you. As you well understand from the histories that you have studied, most of those social movements and the wisdom that guided their development was on the on, based on the identification of a class or category of people that were the victims of the system. Part of the struggle we face, and I don't have the answer, part of the struggle we face is that the nature of the multiple classifications to which people are subject to is not the basis for finding a common interest in developing a mobilization right, in order to challenge against this, this, this system. So I ask you to imagine and help us all think together again, what's the nature of the political process that would allow people to identify a common interest if the public sphere is still being shaped by others right, who are denying, working to deny common interest and turning one oppressed group against another oppressed group. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you want to Okay, yes, if that, I, I, you put that beautifully, by the way, when you said we're being more than surveilled, we're being transacted. Um, I think I want to disagree, though. I think I want to say that it, it, in a way it's more difficult than to stand outside it and say, here are here are the architects of these technologies that we must somehow resist. Um, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to talk about that in the general. I want to give an example of that. So imagine uh, quite a small office in London where, um, and this was, you know, relates to some recent work that I did, uh, observing how algorithms are being used to, to uh, web scrape Twitter and Facebook data in the weeks leading up to a civil protest that's about to take place in London or in Madrid or in Frankfurt or wherever in the world. And sentiment analysis is being run on, on the kinds of material. Uh, this data is being integrated with other lists that are being held by national governments to identify particularly risky individuals who may be planning to protest. Now, I think that the, the need to understand in a, in a very thorough way precisely how what sound like very arcane algorithms, you know, the K-nearest neighbor algorithm and the T-digest, I think we all, social scientists and computer scientists, have a, have a responsibility to have conversations across disciplines to understand exactly what the implications of these things are for the, the capacity to make political protest and to, to organize. 
But then we are confounded, I think, when something happens like the Panama Papers and we realise here is another problem where there's a vast amount of data, arguably far too much data for a journalist or even many journalists to be able to trawl through with human eyes. So they are using actually some of the very same algorithms that I've seen being used for this detection of future protest to say what are the patterns in this Panama Papers data that allows us to say here are the governments, here are the companies and the individuals responsible. Now, that for me is an interesting question because it's to say, well, hold on a moment. These very same technologies used differently have become a means to try to call to account. And so I think, in a way, this means that we have to be, we have to be more nuanced than to say we need to make people aware of what's happening and we need to fight it. We have to become much more adept, I think, at saying there are, there are ways of experimenting, actually, which precisely do call to account. So I've seen also in some very interesting material recently running uh, analytics on the Iraq inquiry data that's already in the public domain. And what, what they're saying is, well, actually, look, this could already have been discussed. Not, we don't need to wait for a final report. That material is here, and there are ways of thinking about what that material could show. So, you know, rather like the way that we think historically about the, the, um, the photograph or the printing press or cinema and how these technologies transform both capital and governance, but also our capacity to have democratic life. I think we have to find ways to think about the way these technologies are also um, capable of making visible things that would otherwise be secret, actually. Great, thank you. If you could just identify yourself as well when you pose your question. Hi, I'm Nick Caldry, the head of the media department here. I just wanted to build on Shaku's question, which in a way goes back to Louise's very eloquent response and the third point you made, which is that the concept of surveillance itself may not be smart enough to grasp a situation where we are transacted through and in that course of that, our entity changes. But on the other hand, uh, and Oscar didn't, didn't get to answering that, so I would like him to come back to that, because implicit in what both of you have just been saying is that we need to consider a possibility of action in relation to all this. So how do we recover a sense of political agency, uh, of, ev of evaluative political agency, which won't be the simple traditional liberal subject for sure, it will be some other version of the political democratic subject. How do we recover it under these situations? Because unless we can do that, we have no possibility of a politics in response to this. So I'm interested in Oscar's, the implicit political subject you're relying on in your argument, and also Louise's response to uh, you know, where that takes the question you ask. Where do we go beyond your question? So part of the response has to be this admission that I made very early on and then later on that I value research and understand and therefore that's data processing the benefits that are associated with it but I suggested and suggest again that we need to pay attention to those applications right, that can be demonstrated through research right, to be more costly in terms of the things that we believe or we value. So the question becomes whether or not we can expect or whether or not it's even politically feasible to bring back 
the Office of Technology Assessment right, to engage in the kinds of assessments in the same way that um, researchers independently are going at risk in order to do the analysis and to identify, and then also to identify the actors, the agencies, the corporations, the entities that are using this technology, which does well over here, but does generate harm over here. It is, I'm still a believer, despite what's going on in my home country, a believer in the democratic process and the role of government Right, and the ability of government to act in the public interest. So I believe that a government research agency can support the fine young scholars in this room and in other rooms who would, if they could support a family, put their minds to the development and the analysis of the harmful consequences across a whole range of spheres of activity. All right? Not to say technology is bad because technology is good. Te- it's, it's uses and it's the motivations of the users. There's also the accidental, but it's the motivations of the users, I believe, that drive the results that we're all concerned about. I think that we need to evaluate technology and assign responsibility, whether it's through taxes or other kinds of means, for the course and their maldistribution in society. I mean, I think this, this is an excellent question and it gets to the heart of the issue because it, uh, what counts as political agency and what counts as politics. And when I responded earlier by saying, well, you know, I think maybe we cannot so readily identify some out- external agency to blame. And I, so I think what I'm talking about actually is kind of a quite a radical politics where we say the technology is us and we are it. So where we acknowledge... In, these, in this, the making of these composites, which include some pieces of my data with some pieces of your data and some pieces of somebody else's data, that my, the capacity for me to move relatively freely through a particular space has a clo- very close political and ethical relationship with somebody else who will be detained. And in the same way, my bank transfer that will move quickly in 24 hours has a very close ethical political relationship with uh, someone else's who will be frozen because it will be considered to be potentially suspicious. So it's about, it's not standing outside of those circuits, it's saying we are inside those circuits and so the capacity for information communication money people to move across boundaries is increasingly being achieved at the cost of the detention the disavowal and the refusal of others so i think it is a radical politics i don't think it forgets its marxism but i think it acknowledges the ways in which we are all of us implicated in in these technologies they're not separate from us and and our lives. Then there's the question of what that would mean in terms of ethics. And I think that it does mean making some claims which are not yet currently recognised on a register of rights. So it's, you know, privacy, of course, is still of the utmost importance. But there are some claims we might want to make where the current register of rights that we think of as rights to privacy simply cannot do justice to that. So my right to freely associate is enshrined, but what about my right to associate without those associations being used in the future in the form of an association rule against me or against some other person? So I think that is precisely then a question of of our ethical relations one with another, which for me is, is what's important about our political lives. So, yeah.
I, sh I won't say any more about that. Thank you. We'll take one last question as we're um, running out of time, unfortunately. Right here in the front with the blue shirt. The blue shirt. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> a growing number of insurance companies only allow telephone renewals of premiums. They use a, a voice analysis technology which purports to detect people being dishonest. I've seen this technology being demonstrated. A little light comes on. There's a, a, control, there's a control period where people are asked to talk on non-stressful topics for 30 seconds or something. Parameters are set. Um, you don't know when the little light goes on. This, this thing isn't marketed as a lie detector. The companies aren't that stupid. It's, it's marketed... Uh, under an anodyne name, but the people operating it are basically asking you different scripts when the little light goes on. Mm -hmm. You're getting supplement, it's, you're branching off to supplementary questions and a higher premium or being refused. I can't see any way that this technology can be challenged in a court of law because it's all happening without any transparency. Uh, and this is just a concrete example of the sort of thing that you've been talking about all evening. Now, what interests me is you said establishing a regulatory focus is part of, part of the solution. I see zero prospects of a regulatory focus in this country. Britain is not a country that values privacy. The, the Modoc press is very popular. Um, and uh, only a couple of months ago, I, I saw the uh, City of London, ex-City of London police commissioner, give a talk on a different subject, security, not, not, not privacy, in which he stated he saw no role whatsoever for government agencies in protecting cybersecurity. There wasn't a gasp in the audience. It was a City of London audience. Uh, there were sagely nods that the future lies in the private sector. This was the man in charge of a government agency charged with protecting citizens from cybersecurity problems. So if you, if you didn't know why there are cybersecurity problems in this country, big time, that's part of the answer. How do you see us establishing a regulatory focus in Britain? I see no prospect of it. Faith. <laughs> you have to believe, I have to believe, and you have to believe. Right that I'm looking at a colleague about long wave theory and changes that occur in time. And I just suggested we have absence of theories about how changes occur. But changes occur in response to technological innovations. They occur in response to social innovations, and they also recur in occur in response to language and law. Right? It's, we don't know the technology. We don't know how to combine those in the proper order in order to bring about the kind of change that we imagine and desire, but we have to have faith. We have to believe that if we engage in conversation with if we do part of my new life as a local life rather than a national or an international life, if we begin to do this then locally, uh, 
My expectation is that people's sense of what matters. I'm imagining that the movements with regard to an environmental movement that is transforming people's understanding of their behavior and, if you will, corporate behavior and its impact on the environment in the future for them and their children is leading to a political response. I believe that there are many areas in which that kind of belief shared, I have faith that that kind of process of realization and transformation of both the, techno- both the technology, the politics, and the law in order to put pressure on the system in order to ensure that it works is going to happen. And it's going to happen because we go out and speak to smart people like you and you say, I'm going to give that a go. I'm going to try that locally. I'm going to engage in conversation with people about uh, these issues. And we're going to find a way. And on that note of keeping the faith, I would like you to join me in thanking you for this fantastic discussion. Awesome.